Hey, is Leanna Mormont Jorah Mormont's sister, niece, aunt? No, she's his cousin. I know that because I'm using the iBooks exclusive version of George R.R. Martin's Game of Thrones called the Enhanced Editions, helping keep track of the storylines, helping you remember how different characters relate to each other. There's an interactive map, and what's cooler than interactive maps? Nothing. These books are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but probably available where you live. Enhance your experience. George R.R. Martin's Enhanced editions of Game of Thrones. Welcome, friends, to the Game of Thrones Entertainment Weekly podcast. I'm James Hibbard, and I'm here with Darren Franich, and we're talking about the spoils of war, an episode that leaked online three days before it aired amid an unprecedented hacking scandal at HBO that made headlines worldwide. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to talk about the episode, which is the shortest one in the history of the show. And then we're going to talk about this hacking news, too, which involved Game of Thrones and was really dramatic. And EW was the first outlet to report on it. So if you're interested in that and how that went down, uh, stick around after the show talk. I really want to jump right into this Winterfell sequence because I have very strong feelings about it. Maybe I was just in the perfect mood when watching it or something, but I just thought it was terrific. Reunions are so tricky to do. And I thought they handled this one really well. Um, I also know that Darren has teased me before we've started recording that there is one scene in this episode that he feels is like the one of the worst scenes in Game of Thrones history. So I'm very curious as to what scene that is. So, um, Darren. Let's start with Winterfell. What do you think? So I'm realizing, James, this season, you would tease this a lot in your coverage of this season in the Game of Thrones cover story that ran in Entertainment Weekly. This idea of like, this is a season about people being together who perhaps have never been together or who have not been together in a very, very long time. The scene in this episode, the slow build to the Arya Sansa reunion, I think it is like the best sort of meetup of that kind that this season has had. If each of these moments is just kind of like on the scale of Pacino and De Niro in heat, like these people who you want to see together finally being together, <laughs> this scored like a 10 out of 10 on that. I loved Arya returning to Winterfell. And unlike Bran or Sansa or John, whose returns to Winterfell have been sort of like these larger than life moments. I loved Arya just showing up and those two putzes at the front gate <laughs> who literally like are so new that they don't even remember right. the previous group of people who used to be there. Your Sir Rodericks and your Maester Lewins. These are people who like just started watching Game of Thrones this season and they're like, wait, who? No, there's like a new Maester. I loved that. They're like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstark of uh, Winterfell. Rosencrantz and, and Guildenstark, by the way, like no shots fired on them. They are my new favorite characters. I'd love to see see just a scene of them trying to explain the last six seasons like they're like oh yeah and then there was that other guy Bolton he had some weird political things going on and we didn't like him as much as King John but I just thought one of the things that I think this show can do because it has these sets that have become just such larger than life places is create a moment like when Arya is just sort of left by herself looking around Winterfell and I just thought that the performance by Maisie Williams was so poetically drawing you into her remembrance and and you kind of remember, like, God, the first time we saw Arya, she was kind of, you know, playing around with all of her siblings, and they were here right in this sort of Winterfell Square. They were all so much younger. They hadn't experienced so much pain and suffering. And I thought that leading from that into her conversation with Sansa and the fact that they both recognized very clearly 
we've had a rough time since then. You know, our stories have been really awful. And then just the line, our stories aren't finished yet. There were tears in my eyes. I, I thought that was just so well handled. How did you kind of feel about that reunion of uh, these two sisters who've gone in just such totally radically disparate directions since last they saw each other? I, I was thinking about how one of the writers on the show, Brian Cogman, once talked about how one of the trickiest things to do with reunion scenes is you have this temptation to have the characters recap everything that happened to each other and on some level the audience wants that you know you want to hear the characters telling each other that but it's giving the audience information that they've already have so the tricky part is is, is how to make those connections and give that information without doing it in a way that feels dull and i just thought that this Everything they did in this whole sequence and the performances by Maisie Williams and Sophie Turner were just fantastic. All their reactions to each other. These are two sisters that have never gotten along particularly well, yet they're so happy to see each other. And I thought it was great that Arya, who's been on this you know total you know homicidal spree, to see some of her. Uh, humanity coming back out again. Definitely. That was part of the heartwarming part of it. And then, they, of course, they go out to the, the Brandbot 9000 to interface with Brand. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's in his new, you know, wheelchair by the, by the weirwood tree. And he's, you know, I suspect he's been, like, tapping tree roots to watch upcoming Game of Thrones episodes or whatever he's doing <laughs> out there. And they have this weird conversation where you realize that they've all changed so much and they're still trying to connect you know, the, as best they can. You're making me realize, hot take, Bran equals Game of Thrones hacker, question mark. I'm going to put a pin in that yes. for now. Somebody get to work on that fan theory immediately. I do love your idea that he is sort of like looped into, of course, like you know, the future and the past of this whole thing. But yeah, um, that moment of kind of reunion of all three of them. And I love that, you know, we kind of saw them from afar. Brienne kind of looking at them in this weird way, carrying the spirit of Cat Stark, even if she is no longer here to see her children reunited. I loved that uh, you almost have this strange quality. My fiance and I, when we were watching this, she kind of compared it to like, it's like they all kind of went away to college and now they came back and they're all very different. And in some respects, it's nice to see them all back together. And there's that other notion of they are so radically different from the children that they used to be. And, I, you know, I was kind of wonder if in a way we're kind of seeing some signposting for the future here that on one hand, it's so great to see this family back together. It was funny because I remember when our cover story ran, we had all these actors together and it was kind of like, ah, that's so great. It must have been so fun for them to hang out. I'm sure mm -hmm. they haven't seen each other on set in forever. Nope. We are very closely approaching that moment of all of these Stark children finally being together in one place. And at the same time, yeah, like you kind of talked about this. Arya has been on a one could argue quite justified run of revenge homicides. Sansa has been just through so many awful moments of needing to become a very different person to live in a dark and stormy world. And Bran basically doesn't think he's Bran Stark anymore. And I thought that was so dexterously handled. James, let's talk, though, the dagger, the Valerian dagger. I feel like, and maybe th this is a misread, maybe I'm missing something. But I sort of went back through the whole history of this dagger after after watching that scene. And it seems to me that if you're confused a little bit about the dagger, I think you're supposed to be. I think there's information that we clearly don't have yet. When Bran goes, you know, do you know who this belonged to? And then he doesn't finish. 
obviously this dagger has been this weird uh, long journey of its own, you know, almost like a Stark character, you know, having almost killed Bran, then gone off to King's Landing with Caitlyn, and Littlefinger says, oh, I owned that, but I you know, lost it to Tyrion, and then Tyrion goes, no, I didn't never had that dagger. Oh, and then, of course, we have a glimpse of what looks like to be this dagger in the book that Samwell is, was reading a, a couple episodes back. So, you know, what's your sort of dagger theory? Well, okay, this is going to be so confusing, and what makes it even more confusing is that there is sort of an explanation given for that dagger in the books, but it is by no means clear that that is the explanation that they are kind of going for. One of the great things about this scene, I think, is that Littlefinger, who I love Aiden Gillen so much, I do kind of feel like this season so far, he's been sort of doing the Littlefinger, you know, kind of lingering in the shadows, talking to people, putting like little bugs in their ear about, you know, what should you be doing? And I love that this scene simultaneously works on the level of giving you insight into his motivation now. He's kind of telling Bran, I wasn't there for your mother when she most needed me, but I am here for her children. And there's that aspect where you're kind of like, even if you are in it for yourself, Littlefinger, which you absolutely unquestionably are, I like that you've maybe convinced yourself that at least for now, being out for number one is also a way to help your dead love. Yes, you are helping her children. Maybe further down the line, you won't be, but I thought that was interesting. But then, yes, he gives this dagger, and what he says is this dagger kind of started the War of Five Kings. This is like the Gulf of Tonkin. This is the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. This is like the beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. And you kind of realize as a viewer, like, oh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> like, you know, I always sort of thought more Jamie pushing Bray out the window was was the inciting incident more than that personally. Sure. I mean, well, and, and, you know, part of the fun here is as with like, you know, when you analyze World War One, you can go all the way back and say like, when did this really begin? Like, what was the chicken? What was the egg? I, I did like the idea of Littlefinger, at least, sort of trying to tell Bran like, this was it. Like, this was a moment of outright hostility that led to the emergence of hostilities that had been perhaps simmering for a very long time, and you could go back deep into the histories of the respective families involved. But I loved that. But, to your point, this does bring up the fundamental question of who sent that assassin to kill Bran, which the show has never fully answered. And and I'm, I'm loath to dig too into it. In the books, there is kind of an explanation given, although even then it is a somewhat distant and mysterious explanation. And Littlefinger's involvement is an interesting question, and I think Littlefinger's involvement here is an interesting question. I love that there is the implication, perhaps, that Littlefinger is giving this weapon that could have killed Bran to him. Perhaps Littlefinger was involved in that weapon almost being used to kill Bran. Again, I, this is not anything I'm saying as a theory. It just, it seems all kind of there that like the last time Littlefinger was involved in this, he was on a different side of the Stark-Lannister divide. Um, this is all to say, I don't really have a dagger theory. Do you have a dagger theory, James? <laughs> I, I, I always... And I'm actually trying to recall whether this is more from the books or from the show. I'm sure you probably know whether because it was always heavily implied that that Joffrey paid yes. the assassin as a way to impress his father, the king. Yes. Right. That's been kind of the working assumption. To quote Olena Tyrell, that Joffrey, what a C word. Um, <laughs> yeah, that has been the working assumption. But again, so to dig into it in the books, there's a moment at the wedding where Joffrey kind of mentions that he is familiar with Valyrian steel. This leads Tyrion to kind of realize what went on. Jamie 
kind of later also realizes it, but a lot of this is just very after the fact. Joffrey himself never gets to take credit for it because fortunately he dies horribly. This is all to say, I am interested to see if there is more that the show is doing with this, and I love the idea that there may yet be some revelation that goes back to the deepest core of its history. I do also like, though, the idea that we're now so deep into essentially like two different phases of a war that has consumed Westeros that this thing that seemed very important, it's now just kind of like, oh yeah, like it actually doesn't matter anymore who tried to kill you, Bran, because you're a totally different person. The stakes are all different now. And maybe everyone involved in that assassination is dead anyways. Like just an interesting thing to sort of introduce because it is either a hugely important plot thing or it's an evidence that we've just come so far that Bran being almost assassinated was no longer as important as we thought it was. So very, very interesting. I, I like when the show does that with its own kind of deep history. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the theories will spring up. It does seem to me that they are suggesting that there is more to come right. on this that we don't realize. And it, Littlefinger doing this really triggered um, Sansa, understandably so, because he's suddenly doing something that she doesn't understand, and she very wisely you know, never wants to feel like she knows she needs to always understand what Littlefinger's doing. Yeah. If he's up to something, then she wants to know what he's up to and why he's doing it. She's never going to feel safe with him kind of lurking around, I feel. And James, of course, uh, as, a, as a student of uh, drama theory, you know that one of Anton Chekhov's main rules of narrative is if you introduce a Valerian dagger in season one and then reintroduce it in season seven, <laughs> it has to be used to kill someone surprisingly by the end of season eight. I love that, uh, you know, Bran, again, just I loved your comparison of him, just this sort of like pure bot of information now, him saying that I have no use for this Valerian steel. If you remember the the hero that Bran wanted to be, the sort of warrior that he dreamed of being, this is sort of a weirdly gut-wrenching moment. Mm, Gives the steel to his sister, who can definitely do some badness with it. Um, not an important moment for plot, but I just loved it for the characterization of the two of them. Brienne and Arya kind of having their sort of like knockdown drag-out fight, I thought was super fun. Nobody will appreciate this reference because nobody likes the movie, but it reminded me of the fencing scene in Die Another Day, the it just kind of starts off as this wow. sort of like playful training duel and then gets crazier and crazier because you were just kind of like they could really kill each other but they also seem like they're having fun like I, I just I, is this I, the one with Madonna? It is the one with Madonna yes I love <laughs> I love Die Another Day I wrote like 2,000 words about it people can find it if they want to but but the best thing about that fencing scene is that at every moment you're kind of like oh they could really kill each other right now and I, I felt that so much in the performances I I Yes, say what you're going to say, James. Say oh, it's not no, a no, good no. movie. Yes, I know. It's got an ice <laughs> castle and it's got an, an invisible car. I no. know. It's not as realistic as your precious Spectre I, was. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but what I was going to say was that Arya brand scene was my favorite scene in the episode, e even more than the bonkers, amazing battle scene later. Um, and, and it sort of goes back to what I was talking about with, with Cogman about how this difficulty of of reintroducing and and recapping what would characters know, and this was a super smart way of Arya showing Sansa, not telling her how much she's changed, and doing it in a really entertaining way. There was so much going on non-verbally with all the actors, from Brienne's bemusement initially of Arya challenging her, that kind of evolved into surprise and then impressed respect. 
to, I think, one of my favorite shots, Littlefinger looking like he's about to make some snarky comment about Arya and then wisely, like, thinking better of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything to me about the scene was pure joy. You have these two female characters who morally are probably very different from each other, physically, obviously, very different from each other, and yet they're discovering through this skill set that is so rare for women to have this sort of mutual camaraderie and respect. Yeah, well, and and how great is it that, like, one of them is a knight and one of them is basically a ninja, too? You're just like, yes! like Knight versus ninja. These are, yeah, yeah. These are, these are two super cool fighting styles that are now like doing battle here and the best thing is that this is a clear setup that like they're on the same side now like oh yeah it's such a joy yeah you're so right and then there's Sansa her reaction to Arya is really interesting because and you're like wait is she angry is she jealous what's going on there and then she leaves and here you have Arya doing something that is very almost kid-like to a parent like look at me look at what I can do and then she looks up and she's gone. And the look on Arya's face is a sort of both, there's, a, there's, a, there's some disappointment there. And there's also this very sort of adult calculating of, okay, what does this mean? And I just thought both the actresses and everybody in the sequence just killed it. It was, there's so much non-verbally going on. And it was really exciting. I could geek out about the scene for a long time. I couldn't agree more. Two more notes on Winterfell, both of them uh, very verbal. One, I'm sure a lot of people caught this, but Bran's kind of final word to Littlefinger, chaos is a ladder. Oh, yes. That, of course, is a great deep cut reference to one of the all-time great Littlefinger speeches. Exactly right, when he's talking to the spider. Interesting, James, and I'd love to know if the writers kind of were intentionally doing this. They're pretty intelligent with this stuff, so I have to imagine it was at least on their mind. That scene of Little finger in season four saying chaos is a ladder ends with that like horrifying moment where you've seen that Joffrey has killed uh, the wonderful prostitute Roz with a crossbow found it interesting that elsewhere in this episode someone who is attached to the Lannisters took down a big dragon with a big crossbow not sure if that was like an intentional reference maybe crossbows are just cool who's to say other note though James Mira Reed, can a girl catch a break? This is how she leaves the show. <laughs> she comes in and is like, well, like, I'm going now. Oh, I, that was This is a way luckier exit than most minor characters well, sure. have on the show. So I think she should be thrilled. But it's also like not an exit. But I, I will say one of the things that I love so much about the show is how like very often, I mean, and, and this goes all, all the way back to season one with random bits of seeing the maester in King's Landing, who, you know, was a very distant figure in the books and as kind of played by Julian Glenn lover. We got more time with him. The show is generally very good at developing these characters. I do feel like Mira Reed just spent four seasons sort of following along with Brad. And so just for that to be sort of her exit, I was kind of like, oh, come on. Maybe there's more coming. Maybe there's more coming. We'll see. So is that the scene that, that you thought was the worst one? Yeah, because it's just like, what? Like, this is the grand finale? Like, and your whole mission was for this to happen to Brad. Like, are you surprised? Like, were you thinking he'd come back and be like, all right, let's throw a party for all the dead friends we lost? I, I don't know. Just her whole attitude towards him was very strange and it did feel like yes we get it Bran is different but I don't know you'd expect more from her I mean she's been on the journey with him and I I just thought it was frustrating that she just sort of leaves like well you know I have to go now Planet Reed needs me I I thought that that could have been handled again again perhaps that is not the last we see of her I'm withholding judgment until more information is uh, present I I, I never really had much emotional investment in Mira Reed so I mean I I focused on that scene was on Bran and his 
and how he's changed. And I love the line where he tries to explain it. And he says, I remember what it was like to be Brandon Stark, but I remember so much else now. Yeah. And I, th- I thought that was a really sort of interesting way of putting it how crowded his mind is. And that part of him has been just reduced down to this really small bit considering the all else that's in there. Well, the reeds are definitely the Greyjoys of the North, and everyone knows my thoughts on Greyjoys. Um, more. Speaking of Greyjoys, for that matter, should we shift down towards Dragonstone, James? Yes. The mining operation, gotta say, not only have they had great success with finding Dragonglass, they've had great success. It's both mining and an archaeological dig. What's more fun than resource management than archaeology? I thought uh, if only there was a hot spring pool in there for, <laughs> for 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 John to take Danny to, you know, I mean, it, it would be like the perfect case. Well, that's listen, let's put a pin in the whole John and Danny chemistry thing. Like they are definitely aunt and nephew, which always adds interesting subtext to their scenes together. What I found interesting about this was after the last episode where I did think there was something very parliamentary about their interactions, you know, episode three, they're both rulers. They're meeting for the first time. There's sort of this filter of multiple assistants on either side of them. I liked how in this moment you really just saw them getting to interact together. They're kind of going through this interesting cave. And then you get to the cave paintings. I am such a sucker for anything involving the children of the forest and the first men, even if I sometimes confuse who were the first men and who were the Andals, and we're not going to get into that now. But I will say, I, I did really enjoy how you had these like awesome, like hieroglyphic, deep history, like this is the children of the forest, this is the first men. Were they fighting? No, they were united. And then you had the pictures of the White Walkers were like Drew Struzan level beautiful <laughs> illustrations. I was like, oh man, the children of the forest had definitely developed as artists from this cave over to this cave. <laughs> but um, how did you feel about just sort of the insight that we got there and like what that kind of means for those two characters uh, as they kind of continue to deepen their alliance, uh, you know, in, in this episode especially? Yeah, I liked this scene better than I did their first meeting scene, actually. I mean, just maybe because the first one had, by necessity, a certain amount of formality to it. With, with titles and declarations and her, her on her throne. And to me, this one was so much more intimate. They're taking this little romantic cave stroll by torchlight. They're making the real eyes at each other. At one point, he totally unnecessarily like takes her arm to like turn her. It was just you know, a smooth move, Jon Snow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun. And you know, then, of course, she interrupts the chemistry by going, hey, you have some commitment issues. You need to work on that. You need to sort of bend the knee and put a ring on it if we're going to, like, you know, move forward on this. Yeah, well, what do you think about that, James? We've discussed this a little bit, and... It is this interesting question of what should John... It's a tough position for him to be Totally. In. It's a tough position. Yeah. And really, you know, this is part of the fun of the show in a way is always kind of like digging into like, what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to be a leader in this world? For John, like, you know, on one hand, you, you do understand him saying like the North won't accept a Southern ruler after everything that's happened over the last like few centuries, really, but certainly over the last few years. But I mean, to me, th- there is the reality of like, I'm intrigued that Danny's whole thing is like, you know, you have to do what's best for your people. That's why they 
they named you king. My counter to that would sort of be like, Danny, being a king is a very fluid thing nowadays. You know, it's not <laughs> as if, you know, I've been, I've been king for like, for like a month and like they literally named me king in the middle of a hall after I won a battle. Like, I'm not so sure that I'm in the most rock solid position there. So I do see where he's coming from and it is kind of interesting. I mean, so much of John's arc on the show is kind of this guy who maybe as a young man imagined this grand destiny for himself needing to sacrifice. I mean, sacrificing, you know, first his life to the Night's Watch, sacrificing the woman he probably loved because, you know, in service to what he believed in, now literally sacrificing his life. And so there is that interesting question of like, is this the final sacrifice, sort of being the king and bending the knee? And what does that mean for the North, who probably are not going to like that too much? I I find it's a really interesting, complicated scenario that, that's been set up between the two characters. I think his inner conflict is really helped by the earlier episodes in which we saw him with the lords in the hall dealing with with more minor issues. And you sort of saw how he struggled with that and how you know it's a very contentious kind of fraught thing. And so now when he's there... And she tells him, oh, you need to do this. You know, we remember those recent scenes and we, we remember what that's like. So I think it helps us feel his inner conflict in, in those moments. Um, I do think it's a definite turning point in their relationship when she gets the bad news about the, how the war is going. And she turns and asks him what he feels. She puts him on the spot. Um, she's treating him suddenly like a trusted insider rather than like an outsider. Mm -hmm. Well, because I mean, this is always the great thing about Danny is like so many other rulers on this show make the mistake of kind of being like, I'm putting all my eggs in this basket. Red Woman, you are my main you know, strategist now. I'm Tywin Lannister and I am like, you know, not going to really trust anyone. And so I like that in this moment, you are kind of like, this has always been Danny's thing. She is running a like, Parisian art salon of like rulers here where like anybody can come and join so long as they sort of swear fealty to her. She now has a Lannister and the supposed son of Ned Stark on her side. But yeah, I love that moment of her kind of saying, what do you think I should do? And I mean, I'm sure a big question hovering over this season continues to be, you have all the military power as far as having dragons. Why aren't you just striking? It's almost like this series of obstructions for her. And I think John made the best case that your people believe in you because they think you're different. If you do this, you'll show you're no different at all. And I love that that's kind of echoed in something that Missandei tells John, that th this idea that, yes, she's our queen, but she's not our queen because of her history and because of who she is. She's our queen because we chose her which again it's interesting it is kind of the show playing this fun game of like it's kind of like democracy but with all the fun of having a cool queen I, but I, I was very intrigued by that that kind of framing of her in this episode speaking of which what's going on with davos and Missandei there i mean is he flirting with her i can't i can't quite place what, what's going on but in the season premiere in Dragonstone, he was really chatty uh, and kind of into her. And you think, oh, he's just kind of being diplomatic. This time, you know, he's still doing it. And, and I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't think we've ever seen the Onion Knight this happy. Uh, uh, yeah. Is, what, what's your take on that? Well, listen, everyone knows Davos is my favorite character in the books. On the show, he's served a really interesting purpose. There is kind of that sense now that, again, more than anything, we've maybe lost track a little bit of what's his family setup. He hasn't really talked that much. Supposedly, he does have family somewhere still. My read on that is sort of almost more like, 
the great thing with him is he's sort of one of the few people from Westeros who recognizes a certain amount of like goodness more so than coming at things with any sort of bias about who's your family, where are you from, all that stuff. He's very curious. He has that kind of curiosity of someone who like lived a tough life for a long time and then in his later years has kind of mellowed out. I think also he's like the best like assistant that any ruler could have. And I think he recognizes it's kind of game recognizing game, you know, like he's like, listen, I've been doing this. I used to, you know, work with a different king. Now I'm working with this guy. You seem pretty good at this too, Missing Day. Maybe we should form some kind of consulting firm for rulers in Westeros. Together we could be unbeatable. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the topic of people who never used to hang out together who are now all on Dragonstone, um, boy, the the Theon Greyjoy tour of misery. Just really <laughs> Poor can, Theon. Because it's so sad. You really thought that like his arc on the show was this spiral down and then not not really like an ascension, but certainly at least like getting back to like net zero. And, you know, I've always kind of said like, I, I do think that one potential ending for the series is sort of like this similar ending to what happened with The Wire where there's this feeling of things are kind of the same, but with different faces. And I've always kind of thought like, you know, could Theon become sort of like a spider, someone who, you know, started off one place and then becomes someone who is, who is weirdly important to the new regime. I kind of no longer think that. I feel like his arc by just getting punched by various people who he has wronged. I just thought, what a gut punch of him seeing John and so much unspoken between them. You're just so aware, like, God, the last time you guys saw each other, you were just, again, your kids in like the Winterfell courtyard, like horsing around. And now just the layers of betrayal that are sort of between them and some minor redemption, but just so well done by uh, both performers. And just Alfie Allen has had to do variations of that, I'm sorry, stare quite a bit but i thought this was one of his finest yeah what really made me lean in on that scene is kit harrington's expression when he saw him because he didn't look angry at least not at first what he looked like is he looked hurt i mean he looked like you how could you you know i mean and and it was just this it was just this expression that just really pulled me in and i was like wow and then of course he <laughs> we, you know, segued rather quickly into wanting to beat the hell out of him. You're listening to Game of Thrones Weekly. Game, Game of, of Thrones, Thrones Weekly. Weekly. Speaking of big battles, a word about our sponsor, iBooks. They have these Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's novels that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. One battle that was definitely more massive and elaborate in the books than in the show was the Battle of Blackwater Bay, which literally had dozens of houses participating in that land and sea battle. And in these interactive editions, you can easily pull up details about the various factions to help you follow the story. The books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, uh, but they're probably available where you live. Shifting back over to the mainland, James, uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this except to kind of like plant a flag. 
moment of Cersei hanging out with the representative from the Iron Bank. It, it has been a good fortnight as far as that's concerned. She had sort of said, like, stick around for a while and you'll be happy. This is also weirdly another, like, super deep cut reference to season one. One of the first meetings with the small council back when Ned Stark was the new Hand of the King was this idea of, like, we are deeply, deeply in debt to the Iron Bank. That debt's been resolved. So again, again, is Cersei a good ruler? Like, you know, I mean, is she, she she's certainly managing to reallocate uh, certain financial strengths uh, within the kingdom. I'm not so sure that Highgarden would think that she's doing good work, though. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, my one takeaway from that scene was that I thought, found it interesting that she's acting as if she's already won. Mm-hmm. You know, she she's she's planning like what she's going to do after the war. Uh, so that's her level of confidence, which uh, is an interesting setup to going to the Reach, where we have Jamie and Braun and what they call the loot train on set, where they have all the, the wagon train of gold as they make their way back to King's Landing. And, uh, you know, we get Braun back. He's providing his invaluable service of arm protection and smart-ass quips. And we have uh, Lord Tarly wanting to flog soldiers. You know, we get get some scene setting. And then we get this really spectacular sequence. What I loved about the slow setup for this, you know, we, we, we just get just the right amount of kind of geography setting. We're not too far from King's Landing. There's that great kind of interaction earlier in the episode between Jamie and Braun, just kind of reminding us of like how far Braun has come. And then just like, you know, that great, uh, it just felt so cinematic to me, even before you get to the incredible texture of the battle scene and the effects of the dragon and all that, that buildup was just so great. Right. Like that was a real like Jurassic Park, you know, the little glass of water starts kind of rumbling. They don't know what's coming, but they kind of also know what's coming. And I thought that was just so incredible. I mean, you know, James, you've been covering the show for so long. It's incredible to me that this is the kind of battle scene that used to only happen in the episodes directed by Neil Marshall, right? Like this this huge, just two armies sort of like at war and right. not even mentioning, again, right. the new addition of a huge flying, fire-breathing weapon of mass destruction. This is something they'd normally build up to for an entire season and then do. Exactly, yeah. I mean, like, uh, how did you kind of feel in this sort of lineage of the great Game of Thrones battle moments? How did you kind of feel this sort of fit in? It feels like something quite quite new, which is kind of remarkable to do this deep into the show. Yeah, I mentioned, I think, uh, when we were talking about episode two, about where they had the pirate raid of the ship, you know, it's every battle they try to make different. You know, every one they try to have a unique feel and a unique style to. And this one, it's hashtag fire. You know, it's, it's, it's lots of shit being set on fire, things blowing up. They set more stunt people on fire than any production in Hollywood history. At one point, there's a shot with 20 different people being set, being set on fire at the same time, which is very, very difficult to do. It's expensive, time-consuming, and it's dangerous. I mean, you know, I interviewed the stunt coordinator for the sequence. I mean, they're, they're talking about how when you get set on fire for these shots, uh, you're in this mask you know, that, that protects your face you're not allowed to breathe the entire time you're on fire. So you're basically holding your breath. It's it's almost like a sequence that's being shot underwater. But if you breathe in, you basically breathe in flames. 
So it's extremely important. So, you know, yet at the same time, you're kind of flailing around, you're potentially bumping into people, you're potentially falling down. So it's not just like holding your breath in a pool or something. Um, and then even once you're put out, there's this like moment, a few moments of danger when there is a danger of reigniting possibly. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do and to do that with 20 stunt people at one time. It's pretty amazing. And it's all because the producers, I, I, one time when I was on set and they were setting fire to that Dothraki village last season, they were talking about how it's easier and cheaper to use computer effects usually to do fire, but it never looks right. Oh, awful, awful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's too organic to, to convey realistically, unless you spend a lot of money and a lot of effort on that digital effect. So... So they always opt for real fire whenever they can. And this one, they just really went for it. Yeah, you know, one of the great things about this battle scene, I think, is that on a subtextual level, it's almost kind of like you're seeing two different traditions of fantasy fighting. Like you have the Dothraki and the dragon, just this feeling of like, you know, this this ancient fantasy, you know, coming out of like Robert E. Howard, Conan the Barbarian, these figures that are just so like almost pre-civilization. It's arguably three because you have the Roman army of the Lannisters, then you have the Dothraki sort of like Native American you know, war charge, and then you have the dragon fantasy element as well. You could kind of frame it in this historical way, this sort of almost like Mongol-esque horde attacking this nominally more civilized, but actually quite less warlike. Yes, this, this idea of like, you know, these guys who seem like they're less organized are actually much more capable of fighting this battle. To me, it just felt so much like, you know, what if Conan the Barbarian fought Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings? Like this tremendous, almost kind of like medieval sensibility matched with something much more ancient and yet also much more successful. And yeah, I mean, just individual shots, you know, th- th- I thought this was right up there with Battle of the Bastards for just these individual moments, whether it was that kind of initial run of the Dothraki through the opening that the dragon had opened for them, right down to like probably the most horrifying moment of the whole thing when that one Dothraki cut off the leg of Bronze horse that was like whoa okay like you know for, for some reason people dying on screen even though you know yes those those are human characters you're like oh no no like they're fine like it doesn't read but when that happens to an animal even though of course they didn't actually harm it there is that moment of like whoa oh my god like that was something I had not seen before how did you kind of feel though James about um you know as much as there's a sort of duel of these two huge armies I love that it kind of boils down to characters that we know, to Bronn, to Jamie, and to Danny. I thought Bronn, talk about a heroic performance by him in this battle. I mean, like, yo, like, former sellsword he might be, but he certainly stood up when it was called for. Yeah. How did you kind of feel about the use of uh, Kyburn's uh, anti-dragon device? Yeah, in a way, it was four characters. It was, it was Bronn, Jamie, Danny, and Tyrion on the hill, where he's, he's watching kind of in horror at the prospect of you know one of these two people that you know he loves them both potentially killing each other um yeah that weapon uh looking up online is technically called a scorpion or scorpio it's based on artillery piece first credited to the romans that used to use as a sniper weapon they would pick off enemies from high ground with bolts thick enough to pierce shields they would get like literally like 60 of those things lined up on a hill and they could fire a pretty amazing amount of you know number of bolts per minute uh it was it was a pretty lethal device and it was sort of a perfect 
thing from our world and our history to, to adapt into a dragon slayer. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of you know suspension of disbelief there because it's like you know she's grounded it's like where are the dothraki to help her or where are the uh lannisters army to, to like kill her you know so they sort of isolate you know these two characters danny and jamie in that moment and you sort of wonder well would they really would there really have not been anyone else around but it made for such a strong scene in in the script it said tease the actors as they were reading it by saying, you know, you know, one of our main characters is about to die, you know, and then Jamie just goes for it, you know, he, he does his Hail Mary run and uh, tries to try and end the whole war by himself. Which I got to say, you know, and this to me was the real strength of this battle sequence, because some core element of this show is always the idea that like there maybe are no bad guys and no good guys and who you wind up rooting for is not who you think you'll root for. And so there's this interesting turn that happens in the battle where Danny is just so leveling these forces and just the visions of them sort of like on fire. You do just kind of naturally find yourself rooting for the underdog, even if recently that underdog was the destructive force rampaging through Highgarden. And I just loved that it was like, turn where you don't want Braun to die because he's hilarious so you're just like oh my god like I really hope that dragon doesn't get him but then he successfully shoots the dragon and you're like I also like that dragon I I, I don't want that's bad that's making me sad that that's happening and Jamie of course who despite all of his his life his whole life cycle of making poor decisions with occasional good decisions mixed in you don't want him to kill Danny but you also know why he's doing that um in that moment of the dragon turning to him, I really thought that this is going to be how this episode ends, just the flames coming towards us. Glad that wasn't the case. Love the uh, glowing throat, by the way. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, listen, when you see the glowing throat, that's the last thing that you're ever going to see, generally. Uh, I believe that was Bronn who jumped uh, Jamie out it of the was. way, right? Yeah. Um, Saving his life yet again. Yeah, saving his life yet again. Braun should get freaking Highgarden now. Yeah, <laughs> give him Highgarden and Doran while you're at it. So it's not like anybody else is doing anything with Sunspear right now. Um, but yeah, just so great. And then just to cut, like you literally sort of see Jamie just like falling into the water, which I almost kind of thought, again, looking for kind of poetic resonance here, reminded me of the best Jamie scene of all time, him just kind of descending into the pool as he's reminiscing about one of the hardest moments of his life. Ironically enough, a moment where he had to kill Danny's father. Um, just thought that was so well done. And I mean, you know, again, to have that battle scene and then just like the cut, I'm sure a lot of people were like, why was this the shortest episode? But Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's good to know exactly when to sort of wrap up. This is the type of thing that we've been waiting for. It's main characters really coming together in battle and in a conflicted way uh, as the series winds down to or winds up, you know, to its uh, final season. I mean, this is the type of stuff we've been waiting for. And now that we're getting it, it's like, but wait, I don't want to lose any of these people. And uh, James, this is actually a great moment for us to get into my favorite segment of the show, the trivia segment, realizing, uh, hey, weirdo, you've not been telling people the answer to these trivia questions each week. Thank you for the literally hundreds of people who emailed sending in answers and also asking us for the answers. First question of the season, who was the highest ranking member of the Targaryen family 
in Dragonstone before the departure of Danny and her twin. That was, of course, Ryella Targaryen, their mom, who unfortunately died uh, in the birth of Danny. Um, second question that we asked this season was which of the high families at the beginning of the show has lost the most amount of people as far as the outside world is concerned. This means we were not counting the fact that three of the dead Baratheons were secretly Lannisters. It's the Baratheons, because all the Baratheons are gone now, unless you count Gendry, who we've not seen for a while. Uh, The question last week, we were talking a little bit about Volantis, who was the first character from Volantis who talked about their memories of the place. That was, of course, Talisa. We would have accepted Talisa Stark. Um, This week's question, though, uh, the trivia prize this week is I've brought ice and fire together, t-shirt with the quote from Melisander. James, we were just talking about how Jamie was trying really hard to kill Danny this week. If he had killed Danny, besides the rest of the show becoming way more depressing than we could ever imagine, he would have entered the oh-so-rare club of people who have successfully killed two generations of a family on this show. We're talking about not just one person, but also that person's parent or that person's child. So here's a question for you. Who on this show have we seen kill both a parent and a child multiple generations of the same family. Now, quick little asterisk next to this, because everything on this show needs an asterisk. We're not looking for, like, ordered the killing. We're not looking for, like, was in charge of the forces who did the killing. We're looking for in the room when it happened. There are about three answers that we'll accept. If you get all three, you may be the lucky person who wins the trivia prize. Send in answers to gotpodcast at ew.com. James. Let's talk the hack. What happened? You were there. You're our man in Westeros. This week you were our man on the internet. What's what's going on? What do we have to know? Yeah, it was it was really weird because um, there's a lot of sites out there that purport to have leaked Game of Thrones content. You know, every Sunday, you know, these niche sites will post, "Oh, watch the episode now live stream," and they're clickbait. They're they're not real. So I got an email on um, I think it was early Sunday morning basically alleging that uh, that they had hacked HBO. I, and I w- wouldn't have normally thought that much of it, but it also contained the name and phone number of a senior HBO publicist. And HBO has, has a lot of different publicists. And this person is not on Game of Thrones, um, even though the, the hacker's email was sort of Game of Thrones themed, if you will. But he was exactly the right person that would be assigned by the company to handle something like this if it had happened. And so even though you know there are several reporters out there who got this email, I took it seriously because of that. And so I started reaching out to people at HBO and I started to hear something is going on. You know, so there, there's something serious. We don't know what yet, but something might have happened. And um, in the email, there's also a link to a website uh, that had download links for episodes of Insecure and Ballers and Room 104 and potential Game of Thrones script. I didn't click on any of them because, you know, if hackers sets up a <laughs> website with like download links on them, I'm not going to download something to my computer and open it. But, um, you know, so that that seemed unwise. But uh, uh, so I was trying to confirm if they're real. And, and by um, Monday morning, Chairman Richard Plepler sent an email to the entire staff 
talking about the hack and and vowing to sort of soldier on. And, and as soon as that e- email went out, I got a copy of it. And so we're first up with that story about this. And it's a uh, you know, you know, this has happened obviously to Sony. Uh, it happened to Netflix with Orange is the New Black. It's this increasing problem that major entertainment companies are, are having to deal with. And you know, for a lot of these companies, it's it's sort of their worst nightmare. You know, I mean, it's it's like you know, this, the content's really valuable, and more more than the content in some ways is is the concern over you know personal information. Uh, the original hack had many documents that seem to be from one particular executive's computer. Uh, So it was, it it was, it was pretty dramatic stuff. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about this, James, is I grew up in the nineties when the idea of a hacker was as a plucky, adorable outlaw, Sandra Bullock in the net kind of person. Uh, Fair to say that archetype has shifted a little bit in recent years. And so, you know, what I find interesting about all of this is Game of Thrones is probably the most secretive show, or at least it certainly is the most expensive secretive show on television as far as not wanting to reveal things. So crazy to have this happen. I mean, just on the level of seeing HBO's reaction to this, is this kind of like, I guess one question is, is this like the new normal now? Or like, you know, what do networks kind of have to do to sort of prepare themselves for stuff like this? I mean, again, this is like, this is the most popular show, which also makes it a target, but you would also expect then that it would have a greater firewall than the DOJ. Like, it's hard to sort of like wrap my head around all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to tell whether... HBO aired somehow in terms of their security, or it's just part of the price you pay for having what's arguably the biggest show in the world that everyone is so curious about. You know, nobody's hacking into CBS to get the upcoming Madam Secretary. You know, I mean, (laughs) they're fine. They don't have to worry. And at the same time, you have other studios doing things like a Star Wars movie or, or a Marvel movie, and those don't leak, but those are all centrally controlled with hbo they have affiliates around the world you know and they shoot for a very long time uh for many months in lots of public settings you know there's 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 many more ways that game of thrones can get out there than uh, you know for instance uh, a star wars movie yeah so they're both more vulnerable and um than other uh companies and they have this asset that everybody wants and 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 this is where it gets a little confusing because no Game of Thrones episodes, at least as of the time that we're recording this, have leaked due to the hack. It looks like all networks uh, use these internal screening systems and that reporters get limited access to, too, to watch upcoming episodes. And it looks like everything that's leaked was on this screening system. And they took Game of Thrones off that screening system, even internally, about a year ago, out of concern for this very type of thing happening. So... The crown jewel for HBO was protected, but then we had the other shoe drop uh, with this uh, later in the week when all of a sudden episode four leaked online, but it wasn't apparently from the hack. It was from Star India, which is a uh, cable network in in India. They get episodes in advance in order to do like subtitles or dubbing, and the episode leaked out through them somehow. So in the middle of this, this devastating hack that, that, uh, that they're all concerned about, suddenly one of their own partners ended up accidentally somehow uh, leaking an episode. And so it's, it's, I mean. Yeah, and you know, 
I mean, James, I think one of the things that I find so frustrating about this, and I mean, listen, I'm like somebody who grew up in the Napster era. So, you know, definitely let he who's without sin cast the first stone here. But like, who the heck wants to like, I mean, just like you're hacking into HBO because they produce this thing that a kabillion people around the world love. And that, by the way, a kabillion people have worked on. I, who even knows why they did this? Probably for no reason at all. This isn't you taking on some like faceless corporation. It's like, it's literally 20 dudes who got set on fire to film this episode. You know, does this impact them in the short term? No. But, you know, is this just such a weird precedent to set for a show of this size to have to kind to go on being afraid of something like this happening. I mean, I guess, James, this does kind of open up the question of, does this hack happen again as we're going into the final episodes of this show in the in the next season? Like, you know, what, what extra steps do they have to take to make it even more top secret? Making a TV show isn't supposed to be like working in the CIA, you know? It's like, I can understand this idea of let's get this valuable content before anyone else can. And I can understand the idea even of, oh, let's prove ourselves by taking down this big corporation. But where I really sort of think that that there's a real moral wrong here is when they start posting people's private information, you know, threatening to post people's emails. I mean, these aren't people working in some corrupt political administration. This isn't Enron. These are just people making TV shows, you know? I mean, they, they don't deserve to have to live under this fear of, of having their private communication and personal in information spread across the internet. And and what really annoyed me ab about the Sony hack is, is how eager a lot of places were to run stories off what was in those emails. It's, it's like, you know, this isn't, something that's really necessarily hugely in the public interest. It arguably re-victimizes people to go ahead and, and, and report what's in leaked content like that. But I also see people online that clearly disagree. They're just like, yeah, go get them. Da, 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 da. I'm just like, no, you know, I, I don't know. And as you were kind of saying, looking at it from the business side of things, it's really frustrating to think about the people whose lives are affected by email hacks, but also just like, again, like, to think that, like, on top of everything else that they have to deal with, wrapping up this huge seven-season, eight-season storyline, that now the creators of this show and everyone working on it have to worry about this, too. I, I don't know. I just find that so intensely frustrating. Yeah, I, I, I you know, it's arguably impossible to secure season eight. I, I, I once asked them, even before this happened, you know, how are you going to secure that final season? You know, they already had some leaks that happened before this hack. And they're just like, you know, we have ideas, but we don't even want to tell you what those ideas are, because if we tell you, then someone's just going to figure out how to get around them and do it. Uh, securing that final episode in particular, oh my God, I, I can't imagine the amount of concern about that and the amount of steps that, that, that they will take to try and keep it un, under lockdown and the amount of efforts that people will make. I mean, both, you know, just people who, who, who work at different fan sites and paparazzi and, you know, potentially even hackers, you know, to try and get that information out. And, and I, I get that, you know, there are a lot of people out there that really like spoilers. I, I, I get that. I mean, we have people who work at EW who actually really like spoilers. And, you know, I guess it's just the way I'm, I'm wired, but it's like, I don't want to know what's going to happen. You know, it's like, I want some teas, but I want to experience it as it unfolds. And then, you know, read and consume content like 
the type of stuff that we make that uh, that helps process that and helps you know, add new insight into it. Maybe the best thing that could come out of this is that if the final episode of Game of Thrones should leak ahead of time, people would stay off social media and the internet for a year out of fear of being spoiled, which could only make this a better world. Everybody else who still likes social media, you can tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. If you want to send in any deep thoughts about the show, let us know. GOTpodcast at EW.com. We're here for your thoughts. And lastly, hey, I like talking to James. James kind of likes talking to me. If you enjoy listening to us talk, you should definitely go on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rate. Give us a review. Let's know what you think. Five stars. That's cool. And uh, yeah, James, excited to come back. Next week, we'll be here. EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. Keeping track of all the characters on Game of Thrones and how they're related to each other is difficult. Fortunately, now iBooks has an exclusive version of George R.R. Martin's Game of Thrones called the Enhanced Editions, a great way to keep track of where people are. There's an interactive map, also a great way to figure out who's related to who and how they're related to each other and who's an ant to who and who's a bannerman to who. These books are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but probably available where you live. A great way to dig back into the books or read them for the first time if you have not read George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones.